Please uh, turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark and to chapter 3 and verse 7. And as you turn there, let me say that earlier in the year we took a a break in our long-term study of Mark's Gospel so we could do a short-term study in the book of Titus. Well, four months later and only halfway through the book of Titus, we're now returning to our long-term study of the book of Mark so that we can take a break from our short-term study of the book of Titus. It's just one of those things, isn't it? If we're committed to expository preaching, we might have our plans about how long we want something to go. Um, But when we get into the nitty-gritty of the text, sometimes we find there is a lot more we need to think through. So we'll come back to Titus at another point. And we can take that as a learning experience as well, that as Solomon once wrote in Proverbs 16, verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So a reminder to hold our plans tentatively before the Lord. And I'll also learn to be a bit more cautious in the future when using the phrase short term. Well, the plan was also to spend several weeks in Mark in the lead up to Christmas. But once again, only the Lord knows and directs the future. And uh, with the news this week concerning Crystal's health, uh, I'll be having several weeks off from preaching so my focus can be given to her and to our boys Um, her appointment in the week just gone was booked for 9.30 Wednesday morning and so I worked to get this sermon done before that just in case we got any news that might ruin our day but I still felt it was important to preach this message you see I'm always amazed at God's providence uh, his care and his guidance of all things for his good and sovereign purposes and right here is a little passage of scripture that we might normally gloss over Um, But I think it speaks directly to my family, uh, to the life of our church at the moment and to our culture at this time. I had no consideration of all of that when I chose this passage a couple of weeks ago, but I continue to be astonished at how often we see God working providentially to ensure that his word speaks into our lives. And what a blessing that truly is. So if I can manage to keep it together this morning, um, I pray you'll be blessed as we study God's word. All right, well, when we stopped where we did in Mark's gospel earlier in the year, we stopped right there for a reason. You see, in chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, Mark's given us a peek uh, into what was happening uh, in the early stages of Jesus' ministry. Uh, But it doubles as a way of helping us catch our breath, helping us get our head around all that's been happening so far and to kind of review things up until this point and that provides us with an excellent uh, point to step back into our study before we read the verse together let me remind you that mark's whole purpose in writing this gospel account is laid out for us in chapter 1 verse 1 and there we read the beginning of the gospel of jesus christ the son of god he tells us that he is writing about the historical beginnings of jesus christ in the sense that this is his, the account of his earthly ministry. Unlike John, uh, who tells us about Jesus' pre-incarnate state, and unlike Matthew and Luke, uh, who go to the beginning of Jesus' birth, Mark doesn't start there. He hits the ground running by starting when Jesus began his ministry. And it's also only the beginning because the way Mark's gospel ends so abruptly in chapter 16 with the the women fleeing from Jesus' empty tomb at the sight of the angel 
uh, it leaves the question hanging, how will people respond to Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus as you read Mark's Gospel? In this opening statement, we're also told that this is the beginning of the Gospel. That is the good news. And what is this good news about? It is about Jesus, the man. A man who is Christ, the anointed one, the royal saviour. A man who is also the son of God, which is a clear statement of Jesus' divinity. And so the good news is about Jesus, who is the divine son of God, who has taken on human flesh so that he could be humanity's royal saviour. And as the gospel makes clear, Jesus saves through the sacrifice of his own life for the sins of all who would come to repent and believe in him alone for salvation. The whole of Mark's account then is aimed at teaching us all about who this Jesus is so that people will come to trust in him. So in chapter 3, Mark gives us a moment to soak in all that has been said to this point. So, Mark 3 from verse 7. Let's read. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Well, the title for today's message is Summarising the Son of God. And in these little verses, we can discern at least five aspects concerning Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And so the first thing we learn about Jesus, we learn about his preeminence. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the preeminent one? Well, if we break the word down, according to the online dictionary Merriam-Webster, eminence is a position of prominence or superiority. The word pre means in advance or in front of. So you might have many eminent people, those of great prominence and authority, but the preeminent one is the person who stands in front of all the rest. He is the most eminent of the eminent. He is the leading authority. And throughout the gospel accounts so far, Mark has shown very clearly Jesus' preeminence over the religious authorities. When we read in Mark 3, verse 7, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, we're immediately led to the questions of, well, where was he withdrawing from and why was he withdrawing? And so if we look back to verse 6, we see the reason. Mark states... The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. In Matthew's account of this incident, he states explicitly in chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. But Mark doesn't feel the need to make this specific, as it's clear that Jesus was fully aware of the intentions of the religious leaders. See, throughout chapter 2, In the first six verses of chapter 3, Mark has recorded five encounters that Jesus had with the religious authorities. And the animosity had been growing with intensity each time. 
finally leading uh, the Pharisees to put aside their differences with their own enemies, the Herodians, and join to plot Jesus' death. As the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So why all the animosity then against Jesus? Because he was teaching with authority the likes of which no one had seen before. And he was validating his authority by his miraculous displays of healing and casting out demons. Jesus was seen as a direct challenge to the eminence of the Pharisees. Jesus was undermining the authority of their traditions. He was teaching the truth of God's law and he was living the truth of God's law perfectly. And moreover, Jesus was demonstrating that he was also no mere man. He was man, but he was also more than that. He told the paralyzed man who had been lowered through the roof that his sins were forgiven, something only God could do. And he proved what he said by healing the man's legs by the power of his word. And the man got up and walked out before the stunned looks of the crowd. Later, the Pharisees started following Jesus around, just looking for an opportunity to discredit him. And they called out Jesus for allowing his disciples to pluck heads of grain and eat them as they walked through the field. Jesus replied to them in chapter 2, verse 28, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, it was a claim to deity, because only God has authority over the Sabbath. And then, most probably the following Sabbath, Mark records that at the beginning of chapter 3 that Jesus walked into the synagogue but the Pharisees were lying in wait because they knew there was a man there who had a withered hand and they were hoping Jesus could just not resist healing him so they could charge him guilty of breaking the Sabbath laws. And they asked Jesus if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath but Jesus knew the intentions of their heart and he told the man with a withered hand to stand up and come to the front. And after challenging the Pharisees about the purpose of the Sabbath, whether it was lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill, he told the man to stretch out his hand. And miraculously, in front of all present, the man's hand was reformed in front of their eyes. The hardness of the Pharisees' hearts was that they could not deny that Jesus had performed this miracle. But they went out, and sought to make plans to kill him anyway. They were more concerned about protecting their turf than repenting of their own sin and submitting to Jesus' lordship. And so when we read in Mark 3 verse 7 that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, it reminds us that this happened as a result of his preeminence, as a result of his clear superiority to the religious leaders, not only because of his devotion to God's law, but because of his divinity as the Son God. But in these few little words, we're also given insight into Jesus' prudence. Jesus' prudence. To be prudent is to exercise wisdom and good judgment. We've come across this word in our recent studies through the book of Titus. In chapter 2 of Titus, where the Apostle Paul outlines the standards of godliness for the different ages and genders in the church, that is, what it, what it looks like for the different ages and genders to be in Christ, Well, there is one aspect that recurs for every member of the church, and that is prudence, or as the ESV translates it, self-control, or as the New American Standard translates it, sensibleness. We saw that the word means having a sound, godly perspective. It means to live life seeing things from God's perspective. 
Jesus is a prime example of what it means to live seeing things from God's perspective. We see that in Jesus' temptation by Satan in the wilderness in Mark chapter 1. Firstly, Jesus was led out to the wilderness by the Spirit. But secondly, he defeated Satan by the power of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the Holy Spirit's word. Now Mark doesn't make mention of this, but Matthew and Luke record how Jesus quoted scripture to the devil and trusted in God's word. A sensible and prudent life is one that is reliant on the Spirit's strength and his written word. But in Mark 3 verse 7, I think we get another aspect of what it means to live in a way that sees things from God's perspective. Jesus showed good judgment in withdrawing from the direct conflict at that moment because he knew that this was not his time to die. It was not out of fear that Jesus withdrew. It was not that he didn't have more to say to the Pharisees either, but his withdrawal at that moment showed great wisdom and it showed great trust in God's timing. Jesus was not trying to force the issue prematurely because if he did, he would not have had the opportunity to do all that he needed before the proper time of his atoning death in Jerusalem. Just think of all that we would miss out on if Jesus chose not to withdraw at that moment and it brought things to a heated climax with the Pharisees straight away. Well, that's pretty easy to imagine. Just put a line through everything that comes after chapter 3. But part of Jesus' mission also involved training disciples who would lead the church and proclaim the gospel after his death and resurrection and ascension. In chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus chose 12 men and appointed them as apostles so that he too might send them out to preach. But there is something else there too. What is that? He chose them so that they might be with him. He needed time for the apostles to be with him. A major part of their preparation was just being with Jesus, walking with him talking with him, seeing godliness and righteousness displayed every second of every day. If Jesus did not wisely withdraw uh, from the conflict at that moment, then his time with the future leaders of the church would be cut short to the detriment of all. See, gospel ministry is not a 100-meter sprint, it's a marathon. And in Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate example of discerning when to press issues and when to allow time for things to settle so that other aspects of ministry can be developed. And in this, we must learn to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. But it's not only as we think about ministry, but simply life in general as a believer. Sometimes we can be so focused on something in our lives that it consumes us and we lose all perspective. Jesus, he never took his eyes off God. And it allowed him to act prudently, sensibly and wisely with every earthly matter that came his way. And there was much that could have distracted Jesus. Because as Mark highlights, withdrawing from the Pharisees did not mean that he was left alone. While the Pharisees wanted to flog him, the people wanted to flock to him. And here is where Mark summarizes Jesus' popularity at the beginning of his ministry. So Mark tells us in chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. 
When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So if the healing of the man with the withered hand took place at the synagogue in Capernaum, which is on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, it seems then that Jesus headed out of town and further north around the water's edge to a more isolated area. And with him came his disciples, a group that included those uh, whom he had specifically called already, that of Peter, Andrew, James and John and Levi, who's also known as Matthew. From John chapter 1, we know that by this point, Jesus had also called Philip and Nathaniel. But this group of disciples would also have included others who were beginning to recognise Jesus' authority as a teacher, men such as those who would soon make up the Apostolic Twelve. But while Jesus may have been looking for some teaching time uh, with his disciples, it did not take long for the crowd to find out where he had gone. And this is some crowd. Mark emphasises the size of the crowd by repeating the word great. There's one reference in verse 7, another mention of it in verse 8. Not only does the size rate a mention, but Mark also shows the scope. It's not people just from one area. Word about Jesus had spread across the whole of Israel. There are people from Galilee, which is the region Jesus is currently in. Then there are people from the south, from Judea, which is the region immediately surrounding Jerusalem. From even further south, people have come from the region of Idumea. Moving around the compass to the east, people have come from beyond the Jordan. And finally, from the north, people have made their way down to see Jesus from the regions of Tyre and Sidon. People have come from all across the whole land to see Jesus. Word of what he had been doing had spread everywhere. When Jesus had cast out that first demon in the Capernaum synagogue, we read in Mark 1.28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Then after Jesus went back to Peter's house and healed his mother-in-law, we read in chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered at his door. There are also other references that Mark lists in the opening chapters to show the growing crowds that flocked to Jesus. Now in an age before modern medicine, news of someone that had the power to immediately heal any kind of sickness any kind of infirmity or disablement, that's going to make its way around pretty quickly. And the picture we get of Jesus throughout the Gospel accounts is that he essentially wiped out disease in Israel during the three years of his earthly ministry. Everyone who came to him was healed. It did not matter the affliction or the ailment, they were immediately healed. So no no wonder he drew a crowd. But I want us to be very clear here, is while the miraculous healings testified to the identity of Jesus, most of the people who were healed did not submit to his lordship. In Mark 4, Jesus is back beside the sea and he teaches the crowd the parable of the sower who scatters the seed and it lands on four different compositions on the ground. Some seed fell on the path some on the rocky ground, some among thorns, and some on good soil. And what's Jesus referring to? The nature of the people who hear the word of God. Many will be attracted to it for a short time and then fall away. 
But there will be some in which the word takes root. And it's only this last group that describes true Christians. Jesus knows full well that many would be attracted to him because of the miraculous healings that he could bring them. But this did not mean that they would be spiritually renewed. Within only a year, or perhaps even less from this moment in Mark chapter 3, we read in John chapter 6 that Jesus is back in Capernaum, preaching to the crowd the the day after he just fed the 5,000. and The crowd had just followed him around the sea to see some more miracles. The crowd had come because they wanted to see another miracle, but instead they got a sermon in which Jesus called them to complete devotion to himself. And he used such graphic language as, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. That's John six, fifty-six to 57. Well, how did the crowd respond to this dramatic call for discipleship? Verse 66. After this, many of the, his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. If people rejected Jesus at the height of his ministry when disease was essentially wiped out in Israel, then the church today should be very wary of getting caught up in anything that tries to draw people into the church other than the clear proclamation of the word. Pragmatism is rampant within many churches today. It is the philosophy that whatever brings results is good. And with that mentality, Jesus would surely have failed because instead of doing what brought people in, giving them what they wanted, he preached to them, cleared the room. But he knew that true faithfulness is a gift of God and that the Holy Spirit regenerates sinners' hearts in conjunction to them hearing the gospel. Jesus was never caught up in his own popularity. His miracles were signs of who he was who he is and he was looking for true faithfulness and fidelity but while we must be careful in our understanding of the the purpose of jesus miracles we must at the same time be careful not to miss jesus provision see regardless of their faith jesus healed all who came to him showing his great compassion to those whose afflictions came from living in a sinful and fallen world And there were so many coming to Jesus that Mark tells us in verses 9 to 10. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. That's just incredible, isn't it? The crowds were so enormous that as a contingency against Jesus being swamped and crushed, the disciples had to have a boat on standby. But notice that there's no vetting policy as to who gets healed. The compassionate provision of Jesus is seen in that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. As a side note, this shows us that the so-called healing ministries that operate today, where the crowds are vetted so that those with physical and visible ailments are prevented from coming up on stage, kept at the back in the dark, these are just a complete fallacy. Jesus healed everyone who came to him and he healed them from every kind of disease and impairment and he healed them instantly. 
And while there were times when Jesus attributed the faith of the person healed as connected to their healing, there were many moments such as this event in Mark chapter 3 where there was no condition of faith that led to healing. It was simply the compassion of Jesus as a reflection of the Father's heart. This is a far cry from the faith healers of our day whose fallback position when a person fails to be healed is to blame it on the person's lack of faith. What we see in Jesus' actions is, in one sense, an extension of God's common grace and love, even for his enemies. It's this which causes God to make his sun rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and on the unjust that Jesus speaks of in Matthew 6, 45. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is who? The Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort. But overall, Jesus' provision of healing is a clear illustration of what life will be like in God's eternal kingdom, a time and place where the destructive effects of sin will have been fully removed. In Revelation 21, we're told that in the new heaven and the new earth, God's people, those who have been brought to faith in Christ Jesus, will dwell in God's presence. In verse 4 we read, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The provision of Jesus in his earthly ministry vividly demonstrated the wonder of this eternal state of glory. Yet for sinners who are all rebels against God, the desire is for God's blessing without submitting to God's rule. We want the gift, but not the giver. People of Jesus' day may have been healed of their physical infirmities, but this was not an eternal healing. The wages of sin is death, and as sinners they all eventually succumb to death. So unless they humbled themselves before Christ in repentance and faith, they would never experience the full blessing that awaited in the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what? The same is true today. We read clearly in the scriptures about God's compassion to his enemies. But we also recognize that unless his enemies call upon his mercy by trusting in his son, then there will come a point when they will be judged for their sin and face God's righteous wrath for all eternity. So do not merely seek the gift and not the giver. Do not just look for physical healing, but submit to the giver. And you will know the gift of eternal life and experience the blessing of God's provision in eternity. And even if we do not receive physical healing in this life, we are to pray for it. But even if we don't receive it, we can trust in God's goodness and compassion. Knowing that if we have experienced spiritual healing through faith in Christ, then one day we'll know full healing and glory at the resurrection. Well, we see... One more aspect of the Son of God in verses 11 to 12. As one commentator said, the crowds fall upon him, but the demons fall before him. Here Mark gives us a summary of Jesus' power. Verses 11 to 12 tell us this, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Scripture shows us that demons prefer to remain concealed 
And Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 14. But when Jesus walked the earth, they could not maintain composure. They panicked, they revealed themselves and they fearfully cried out to Jesus thinking that this was the moment of their final judgment. The term unclean spirit is essentially synonymous with the term demon and Mark uses them interchangeably in several places in his gospel account. In the Old Testament, the clean and unclean laws related to holiness. And by referring to the demons as unclean spirits, the gospel writers showed that they were unholy spirits. They were separated from God. They were undevoted to God. And as such, they abhorred everything about God. Jesus, on the other hand, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there is a clear separation, a contrast and an opposition. In Mark 1, we see Jesus' first encounter with a demon at the synagogue in Capernaum. In verse 24, Jesus' presence and teaching cause a demon-possessed man to reveal himself and fearfully cry out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons knew who Jesus was. He was the Holy One of God. Indeed, he was the Son of God. The irony is that in the Gospels, the, the, the ones who grasp Jesus' identity most clearly are the demons. And until the Holy Spirit regenerates in his hearts, they remain unable to see that there is truly a spiritual battle going on around us and they remain unable to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. Jesus didn't need or want the demon's testimony. For starters, Jesus was fully aware that the devil was the father of lies, John 8, 44. And so any words about him will be twisted and warped for Satan's perverse desires and not for the glory of God. And moreover, if the demons spoke about Jesus, then people may get the impression that Jesus is in league with Satan, which by the end of Mark chapter 3, we see is exactly what the religious leaders tried to accuse Jesus of. No, Jesus will not have the demons testifying. Jesus will set in place authorised representatives to speak on his behalf. And this is what we see in the next few verses from verse 13 onwards where Jesus designates his apostles, his representatives. Jesus' power is demonstrated in the fact that demons fell down before him and when he commanded them to remain quiet and not speak about him, they obeyed. To think of Christ's power over the demonic is especially timely because in the week just gone, there has been the regrettable celebration of Halloween. As Australian society continues to move further away from Christian values um, and as the the businesses realise they can start cashing in, we're going to see this unfortunate phenomenon continue to grow. As Christians, we must realise that Halloween is essentially a repudiation of what Christ did in his earthly ministry. In celebrating the demonic, it is to raise up those who fell down before Christ. Fascination with ghost stories, which has exploded since the 1980s, has continued to grow, but what are ghosts except demons? They're not spirits of the dead still roaming the earth, because the Bible makes clear that those who trust in Christ go straight to heaven when they die, and those who refuse to trust in Christ go straight to hell. In Luke 16 
Jesus tells the parable about a rich man and Lazarus. In Luke 16, verse 22, we read that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes up and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And while this is a parable, it reinforces the truth that there is no in-between stage after a person dies. There's no being unable to pass into the light. The experiences of the paranormal are experiences of the demonic. And the only reason people come up with other suggestions to explain the paranormal is to deny the reality of Jesus Christ and the written word of God. To deny that sin has passed from this life straight into heaven or hell is to deny what God has revealed to us in his word. That as Hebrews 9 verse 27 declares, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. To celebrate the demonic is to be deluded to the fact that the true power resides in Jesus Christ, the one who had power and authority over the demons because he was and is the Holy One of God because he was and is the Son of God. Well, what an amazing piece of Scripture. These short few verses remind us clearly that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. At all points in his Gospel, Mark is trying to drive the reader to the point of recognising that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. His desire is that we would be drawn to understand that the most important thing in this world is submitting in faith to Christ's Lordship. Christ's miraculous displays of healing and his powerful authority over the demons are signs. They're they're a beacon that in Christ alone will hope be found. Many experience the compassion of Christ's physical healing, but they fail to see what the miracle testified that it testified to Christ as the Saviour. May you not be counted among that lot. May you know the true hope of the Gospel, that in union with Christ Jesus, not even death or life can separate us from God's love. And may you see that Jesus is the Son of God and trust in Him so that whether you live or die, you will have the assurance of eternal life in the Kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity, for its power, for its relevance to our lives. We thank you for your providential guiding of all things, leading us to this passage today. May these truths that we have studied this morning be embedded upon our hearts. May we meditate upon these truths. And may we be found faithful to our Lord Jesus, who is your Son and our Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen.